Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello, and welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Andrew Berberick, co-founder of Baton. Andrew, introduce yourself to the audience. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, as John said, I'm Andrew. I'm a co-founder of Baton. Baton's a logistics technology company in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And we were recently acquired by Ryder, which is the Fortune 400 logistics transportation company, where I act as a CTO of the company. I guess before that, I was trained as an engineer, had a couple of degrees from Stanford Engineering, and had a stint in technology, worked at Google for a little bit, and then also did really cool consulting work for large companies or startups trying to launch complete new products. So did work for Lyft and Casper and Facebook, so all sorts of things. And I guess my fun fact is I grew up in Colorado and I uh, was an NCAA runner at Stanford, so I was a big runner head. Oh, wow. So distance runner. Yes, I was a mile runner. I ran the mile. Oh, wow. Pack 12 or pack 10 or pack whatever is left. Yeah, it's changed. It's changed too much. I think Stanford is joining a different conference now. I've lost track. They are. They just joined ACC, but that's okay. I think they're still in the pack whatever is left. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm fascinated with this. Did you have a sense while you were at Stanford and you got multiple degrees and did you have a sense that entrepreneurism was in your future or did you... Because you started on, obviously, you started on with a great company, and then you moved around. Did the, did you migrate once you got into the corporate world, or did you always know you wanted to be your own boss or your own founder? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I remember my dad driving me out to California to go to school, and I actually didn't really know much about Silicon Valley. I didn't appreciate how you know really what it was. I grew up in a pretty small kind of mountain town area, or like Front Range area in Colorado, and. I would say I'm a bit, I was a bit under a rock and I came to school really focused on running and just doing well in school. I, I was studying biomechanical engineering. I wanted to be a doctor and anyways, I had an injury that sort of ended my running career. I had a bit of an identity crisis and I started applying for jobs right after I graduated and uh, got rejected by pretty much everyone except for randomly met the founder of Match.com at a this guy Gary Kremen at a coffee shop in Palo Alto, where he gave me a minimum wage job to build solenoids for a smart lock in a another entrepreneur's dining room. So I spent a summer doing that, and I fell in love. I was like, "Wow, startups are are the thing." Only in Silicon Valley can that happen. Yeah, he's a character. <laughs> so, you, so that was more like an internship. It was an internship, but I yeah, it was an internship, and I didn't really know what I was going to do after. I started applying to, to grad school programs and I was debating whether or not to go on full-time with the, the smart lock company. So fast forward a little bit and you do some stints working in companies and consulting a little bit. How did you, how did you either figure out or decide on Baton? Because now all of a sudden, five years later, you're not only you founded a company, but you've been acquired, which is fabulous. Yeah. So basically that, that internship experience it really made me fall in love with startups. And I became a sponge. I read every single book I could possibly find on technology startups or building businesses. And one that really was helpful was actually before the book was published, Peter Thiel had actually published his course notes for this class he taught at Stanford. And those course notes ended up becoming the book, Zero to One. And I remember reading a, a section in there, which was great companies tend to happen right after major inflection points. 
And an inflection point can be like a global pandemic or a change in government policy that, that makes a ter- certain technology required or, or, you know, generative AI. And I remember meeting my co-founder. He was a friend of grad school, but we would grab drinks and commiserate on dating. And we, we ended up deciding we wanted to just start a company together. We spent 18 months looking for an idea. The first nine months was looking for a, really an industry that was on the other side of one of these inflection points. And so we scanned all these industries, healthcare and agriculture, and looked at trucking where there was this really interesting thing that happened where in 2018, the government mandated something that was called the ELD mandate. Basically, government required that all trucks have GPS devices on them, which was this iPhone moment for transportation. So first, first nine months was looking for an industry that was on the verge of an inflection point. And then the second nine months was finding a problem in that industry. And doing that, we interviewed about 150 different executives in trucking and drove from here to LA, stopping at every truck stop and asking drivers uh, really about their biggest problems. So I take it in 2018, trucking was not very tech-driven. There was the emergence of this freight tech sort of disruptive, this trend. But before that, yeah, there, there was no way to know where trucks on the road were unless you worked for a trucking company and you had GPS devices on your trucks. It's interesting. You did a very specific process, almost like a re- it's almost like a research um, project. Yeah, eighteen months is a seems like a long time, but maybe that's just my sense of the the media version of a startup. Is you wake up one morning, you have this brilliant idea, and you can't get it out of your head, and you go to a Palo Alto co- coffee shop, meet a VC, you have your funding by Friday, and you start a company. That's the way the media per- portrays it. Sounds like you didn't take that course. Yeah, no. I tend to be a believer that once someone has an idea, in order to have a great company, usually has some contrarian insight that is hard-earned that allows them to take a big bet and acquire market share. But there's no way that your contrarian or unique insight was the first idea that you had. There's just no way. So it's usually when you create an idea, you pitch it, you try it out, you fail, Usually like the third time, the third iteration is when that real company idea emerges. And most people don't really appreciate that. It's like the, the company that ended up being the one that you see today is, was never, it's very rarely the first one. Correct. It wasn't the intended iteration. Yes, exactly. It's usually like, oh crap, wow, people want this thing. I didn't think they would. So I know a little bit about your story, enough to know that you guys had some early success and then hit a hit a wall. Everybody did a little because of COVID, but walk us through when you had to pivot or restart, because that's such a classic version of every founder's story. They say, yeah, we set off heading this way and who knows, but we read the tea leaves and ended up over here. Yeah. I think actually when you and I met, it was right during the that process. So it was right at that. Yeah. It was right at that brick wall, I think. Yeah. Well, it was a great experience, and I'll tell you about it, and I think there's some really good learnings there. So our original business model, you can think of it analogous to Uber for trucking. So we had our own trucking fleet, and it had an app, and truckers could log in and receive loads. And we had this tool that allowed us, made us really good at assigning loads to trucks. And we started that business the day before, well, we signed an office lease the day before quarantines hit. And during COVID, 
things were all over the place with supply chains. Basically, at first it was horrible, and then later on it blew up. We went from zero to two million dollars revenue run rate in, I think, like four or five months, and we it was fascinating. So we did that, and this interesting thing happened where we get all these this demand from customers, and so then in order to support the demand, you start hiring employees, and then you start bringing on more drivers, and then suddenly you need more customers, and suddenly you're hiring salespeople. And we didn't understand our unit economics. And so as this thing grew, some days we would make money and some days we'd lose a lot of money. And the unique thing with trucking is in order to be profitable for a day, it's not a matter of just selling a load at a higher rate than you paid for it. You actually need the right load going in the right direction, the right time with the right equipment, with the right frequency in order to be profitable. Well, we didn't know that. And we just scaled this gross margin negative business. And we were like, oh, it'll be fine, it'll work out. But when you're hiring salespeople with commission to sell gross margin negative freight, it's a death spiral. And- Because they'll sell you into bankruptcy. Oh, 100%. And we were hemorrhaging a bunch of money. You're paying them to do it. Exactly. <laughs> and I remember, I think when right around the time we met, I was starting to see how the market was changing Trucking is a leading indicator on the overall economy. So the trucking market actually started tanking. So let me ask this yeah. just for context. Where in the pandemic are we when you hit this fork in the road? This was probably end of 2021. Okay. We, yeah, we actually raised a series A with this gross margin negative business because the rep, the growth rate looks so good. But yeah, so we blew up in the pandemic. You hadn't solved the unit economics problem yet. We hadn't. Yeah. And we had actually signed, I think we got six of the top 10 largest public trucking companies were our like active customers. So he was doing really well. But yeah, we, I started looking, reading the tea leaves. I saw the market changing and realized that if we didn't change our cash burn situation and change our business model fundamentally, we wouldn't be in business. So, so you were essentially like a restaurant that pays for everybody's meal. Exactly. Free meals is a disaster. Yeah, you have a menu, but there's no pricing. It's because you don't charge anybody. Exactly. It's okay for some people to subsidize. You can subsidize like network effect products. You have to in order to light the fire, but eventually you have to get off of that. It's just, it's such a, it's such a classic entrepreneur story because your version is, you can, I can see you guys doing this too. And I imagine the customers loved you. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Everyone loves you when you're giving them rates that are like heavily discounted. And you can, you, the problem is as an entrepreneur, you can get trapped in your own sort of reality distortion field and you start believing your own BS. And you're like, no, like the reason these rates are so low is because our technology is so good. And in some ways, I think that was, there was truth in that. But in others, we just didn't, we were running a trucking business and we didn't understand how a trucking business really needed to be profitable, what needed to happen. So we started selling software. <laughs> so had you been truckers, like had you taken an internship for a year as a trucker, would some of this been clearer or was were you guys never gonna figure that one out from the viewpoint you had? I think it would have been clearer or more clear. I, I think there's a, we have a value now at the company that's called respect the problem. And you really, there's, this world is full of tech people jumping into new industries without understanding them and then just slinging around the word disruption. But 
you can't disrupt things unless you really understand how they are and you actually can like succeed within that reference frame. So we were lucky enough to hire this awesome head of operations, Eric, who was a VP of operations at LoadSmart, which is a several billion dollar freight tech company, freight brokerage. So we had his insights, but I think it's even if, I guess my answer is if we had the internship in trucking, we would know these things, but I think it's also addic- it's very addictive and tempting to just like fall into a growth narrative and just keep you know pouring gasoline on fire. Right. It's, it's, it is intoxicating. Absolutely intoxicating. I love this uh, respect the problem. Where did that come from? Because it's almost like I think of like a wrestling match or a boxing match. And you think you can be better. You can know you're better, but you better damn well respect your opponent or you're going to lose. Exactly. I think there's a couple like origin stories for it. The one that like is the real one for Baton was the one I just described. Our head of ops likes to say that we got our teeth kicked in by trucking and suddenly you're losing a ton of money and you actually are like, wow, I did not respect the reality of this industry. And I can point back to different moments in my career where I was reminded of that. And yeah, there's been several. So was the lack, I'll go with the metaphor, the lack of respect that you thought that tech could overcome the actual realities of it, like tech could solve everything? Like tech is sits on a higher plane than does the actual industry or? I think so. I think, and I've seen this in, a, in multiple cases, like when we built technology products for this industry, one, like a, a famous quote that you'll see, or a very popular kind of staff that people quote all the time in trucking is that it's actually true. One in five trucks on the road is empty at any given point. So 20% of capacity is driving without a load um, or driving with an empty trailer. And some people are like, look, technology problem like this is a software problem and as long as we can just optimize all the freight we can fill the trucks but there's inherent supply demand imbalances in different geographies people inherently move more fish out of port port centered cities than they do send ship fish to those areas so there's a fish imbalance and different markets are going to have just net differences in the amount of goods flowing in and out of them and so you can't, you can solve some of the one in five trucks empty problem with software, but you can't solve all of it. Right. Now that's, it's super interesting. So I'm curious, what do you optimize for today? Given that history, I imagine you're much more respectful and you're also in a different operating environment. You guys have been acquired, which is great, but what do you, what do you optimize for either as a company or in your role? Well, part of this is ironic because our product is actually an optimization piece of optimization software. So do you, we can, I can talk about what that thing's optimizing for. For examples, simple examples. Some companies optimize for gross revenue because if they want to sell the metrics that's used or the, the multiple is based on gross revenue. Oh, like software companies, oftentimes they don't have to be profitable. They just have to make sure their gross revenue. Others, they they optimize for, I'm not a fan of EBITDA because most of the rank and file don't understand EBITDA, so it doesn't connect with people, but they could optimize for net profit or for something like that. It, they, don't, they aren't always financial, but I'm curious. I'm always curious what companies optimize for. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think every great company should have a flywheel in their minds of how their business model works, and you should be able to draw that business model up on a, nap, on a napkin. And I think Dave Sachs, David Sachs drew up a really great, great uh, napkin drawing of Uber's flywheel. And I think Jeff Bezos has one for Amazon. And so for us right now, our, we're in the business of, I'll, I'll give you some context. So, so Ryder is a 50,000 person company. 
we operate two main business lines. One is what most people think a writer does entirely, which is we lease trucks. The more interesting one is that we manage the supply chains of some of the largest brands in the world. And that's the one nobody really knows about. That's the one nobody really knows about. But a huge chunk of the economy is run on rider trucks. And so basically, in that world, you have all of these supply chains. We have 50,000 customers, but they're all managed in silos from one another. So I could have supply chain A over here, and this one has some waste in it. But there's no way to know that supply chain B could actually fit the puzzle piece of waste with a surplus on a given day because these are managed separately. Now, our flywheel is really about creating, we want to create a platform where all of this, these supply chains can be managed together and you can share freight and drivers between them. And so the flywheel, the thing we're optimizing for is actually, it is and at the end of the day EBITDA because Ryder is a public trucking company. But we, we believe that if I can maximize these sharing opportunities and I can take this driver who is empty and give him a load, that allows me to not only make more profit, but with more profit, I can now sell more freight. And with more freight, I get a higher chance of matching a load to a driver. And with more drivers and freight moving through the ecosystem, I get more data. And with that data, I can improve the quality of the optimize, optimization. And so it is truly about optimizing for the facilitation of this flywheel. That's super cool. Um, curious, the shift from being a venture-backed startup to a publicly traded company where stockholders and analysts can not dictate, but certainly influence your ability to do things. What's the mind, mindset difference between having a, a venture capitalist you have to, or stakeholders you have to talk to versus stock analysts who can just say, sell this stock unless you, unless your numbers are the way we like it. It seems like an absolute night and day difference. You have to be much more careful about what you say and do publicly, I think, is that's a big change. When you're in a publicly traded company. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It almost feels like you're incentivized in the startup to be bombastic. <laughs> True. And as a startup, you can change. Or attract a ton of attention. Yeah. Yeah. You can attract a ton of attention. You can make big changes. You can you can move things around. There's another level of discipline that's required at the public level. And luckily, Ryder is a, a very disciplined company that just has done really well. And quietly. Yeah. There's no big figurehead CEO that wants to run for office or something like that. That's it's it's I'm always fascinated by the business that just businesses that just quietly make money without much fanfare. And you think, oh, wow, that's a really good business because uh, yeah. nothing sexy about it. No, 100%. It, this is a, it is a 90-year-old business and you can't be a business for 90 years without reinventing yourself and without innovating and trying new things. But you also won't be a 90-year business if you like overdo it and you are overly bombastic and public about all of the moves you do. And so I think, I think Ryder has a very good disciplined approach to everything. And I think that's what has allowed it to grow and remain relevant that long. But it's also been very good at reinventing itself and adopting the latest thing. Yeah, that's great. Odd question, but I'm going to ask it. You were a NCA miler, which is, I would think, one of the most brutal races because it's a four-minute sprint. It's just, it's a flat-out sprint. How did your history and training and style, if you will, as a runner, how does that translate into your is that framework the same way that you're you are in business 
would say the one thing that has main, remained constant is my style for running a mile was always run your own race. Everyone's got their own race. There was a there was this famous marathon runner, Mark Plotchies, and he was a gold medalist. And he he told me, and I, I this always stuck with me. He was like, "You want to know why the Kenyans always win? They have a very unique way of training." And I'm not sure if this is true or not, but the, the story he told me was that they would basically run 11 minute mile pace most days, and then they would go all out on the other days. 11 minute mile pace. Isn't that for old ladies in wheelchairs? Basically walking. And then on their other days, they'd be running super hard. And my takeaway from that was like, there's no, they're not trying to like be showy or do anything super impressive on their easy days or respecting their easy days. And then they're going really hard on their hard days. And for me with the mile and my training was, I was always, I always wanted to run my own race. I always wanted to train my own way. I didn't really want to, I wasn't the guy that was like trying to like show off and like, be at the front of the pack every time I would sit in the back and I would like Pac-Man people until I was the one in the lead and I would train by myself. And so I think there is some le- lessons, you know, that you can apply to, to startups. It's so easy when your competitor launches a new product to just be like, Oh my God, the competition's doing it. We have to go copy what they're doing. But eventually you all converge on the exact same thing and you have to run your own race. You have to pay attention to the market and the competition, but you're running your own race the whole time. So I pick up on one thing you said. It sounds like you were either self-coached or you did your own thing. Was that possible in a track squad where they've got a they've got the distance coach or whatever? How did you how did you pull that off? Were you just that was just the way you dictated it to them and said, "Look, this doesn't work," or did it just show up in the results where they said, "If you leave this guy off to himself, he'll be ready." If we overcoach him we're going to run them into the ground. I get showed up in the results and the coaches that understood that about me created environments where I was more successful. I, I was lucky enough for three of the years at Stanford to have this coach that really understood my psychology. And he, yeah, he would let me do a lot of my runs and training runs by myself. I would race in my own races and he'd let me run with my own style. Whereas I think other coaches that I, I've had after that emphasize like, they would tell me how to run the race. They'd be like, you need to be out in front. You need to run this way. And I would just not succeed when I did that. Yeah. Did you just ignore them and run your own race anyhow? I did. And to my own peril, I think there was there was a few <laughs> tense moments. <laughs> yeah, they can cut you. It's like a boss can fi- They can fire you eventually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, like results matter. And I think this is the same approach we have with our team. It's I don't really care how you do the work. The only thing that matters is we created a product that people love using and it makes money. And however you get there is up to you. You should have creative authority over over the method. No, it's great. It's great. Curious if your risk profile, 10 being Elon Musk, one being a librarian, has that changed moving to a publicly traded company from a startup or are you really the same guy and you just address it differently because you're in a different atmosphere? I think... The, First off, if you have a sense, where are you on this on a spectrum of one to ten? There's no right answer. It's it's always the re- the right one is the one you are, not the one you're pretending to be. Like these days, a lot of people are pretending to be Elon Musk, and you go, it doesn't work very well. <laughs> I think a lot of people, the risk is like an interesting thing where um, a lot of people mischaracterize entrepreneurs as these like super risky people that are just burning everything to the ground and yep, gunslingers. 
yeah, they're gunslingers. And turns out that most entrepreneurs that actually are that way are not successful. There's a great book called Outliers, and the author oh, yeah. analyzes the profiles of successful people in history. And, and the thing that he notes that I always found interesting was the great success stories are of people that take they take very calculated bets, but they've hedged themselves in a different area. So there's they've got quite a bit of downside protection. And so I've always basically been a believer and I my risk profile has always been I will take very calculated bets. I'll understand exactly how the market is, but I've hedged myself in a different domain. And that domain can be I've got really strong relationships and a support network that that allows me to feel comfortable taking risks in one domain or I know what my runway is and I can like take calculated bets in a series of them before I run out of money. But the gunslinger approach very rarely works. And I think the Elon Musk examples are the exception, not the rule. If you and I are in a gunfight, only one of us walks away alive. How many times can you be in a gunfight? Yeah. You can't do that repeatedly. And it doesn't seem like it anyhow. It's like find a way to not be in the gunfight. <laughs> uh, unless you're really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, you and I've talked a little off camera about. I'm actually I love the the concept of scaling, and I have a theory that there are unteachable. I'm going to call them talents, not skills, because skills you can train and learn a skill. Like I can learn to flip an egg, or I can learn to bake. Doesn't mean I'm talented at it, but I can learn the skill. But some talents are unteachable. The theory is that. Scaling companies have team members with a handful of unteachable talents that if you compound them, those, those talents scale way better than the not, than less. They're not lesser like pejoratively. They're just not as useful for scaling. Any sense of in your journey of some unteachable or an unteachable talent that you and Nate's your co-founder that you and Nate embodied or possessed that helped you to scale better? Yeah, I think the one that we both share the most is just the sense of there's like re relentlessness, an innate ability to always find a way. That was probably the most shared thing. And it's more of a, I got that from running. I think I, we just had that attitude and yet things failed and you just still have us, you find a way to put a smile on your face and you just like dive into the next problem. It's whack-a-mole. I'd say the ones that are more unique to me maybe are I love and I believe I'm very good at connecting with people. And I think that's a really important thing for a leader. You, you want people to feel like they are, I, that they're heard and that they have a unique identity in your company. And if they don't feel that way, or you all have stories of the kind of like the narcissistic CEO, people eventually get tired of that and it's not a fun place to work. I think that's one. And then the, the second is I am very introspective. I try to openly solicit critical feedback all the time about myself and about the company. And I think that makes it very easy to identify what your flaws are and then systematically either find people that are way better at those things and hire them or, or find ways to improve. That's interesting. You have a process for that to say, yeah, not in this lifetime. I'll just make sure I don't ever do that. Or, yeah. oh, wow, that's the third person that said that and I need that one and I actually desire that, I'll go after it. Yeah, it's starting a company is almost like a, it's a pressure cooker and it is so stressful and you are under so many constraints that you are very quickly forced to identify what you are world-class at and hire for the people that actually love doing uh, the things you're weak at. Um, and if you don't do that, if you have some ego in it and you're like, no, I'm actually think I'm really great at this thing, 
and I'm not going to hire for it. You're just going to, you're, you're going to fail. You won't succeed. Yeah. One of my CEO clients, and I think he puts it well, he said, it's like those crime shows where they go in with that little blue light and they're looking for DNA samples and it, it, it's you under a microscope. Yep. Any small thing, it's going to be found out and exploited. <laughs> it's going to be found out. Yeah. hundred percent. And that's a good thing if you're open to it. It's a horrible thing if you're defensive in any way. You just go, what do you mean I'm bad about that? And you go, yeah, you're overly defensive. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You might just, you might want to consider that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right, now I'll go to my, our fun question. If we had hired a National Geographic film crew to follow you around like in seventh and eighth grade, because that's nobody that I've ever met has said, oh, that was my two best years. Man, I was the man. I was peaking. Yeah. So, yeah, I was killing it. Would And then they turned it into one of those nature shows, those 90-minute nature shows. And you go, oh, here's Nate's life in seventh grade. Would anybody, including you, have bet on in the future, oh, yeah, this guy, he's a natural. He, he would have been a... He would have been a successful entrepreneur or a founder or a CEO type. Would we have had all the clues in seventh or eighth grade? I, I'm not sure. I think I can give you a couple like indicators or thoughts. So something most people don't know about me is I was diagnosed and I'm actually treated with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD. And a lot of that actually probably came from some ter terrible experiences during junior hiring and before that, just some traumatic things. And what I would say is, during that time, I became hyper vigilant, and this is like a thing that I carried on through my adulthood. And a person with PTSD has this symptom, it's hypervigilance. And it actually has a trait to it, which is you, you become super perceptive of minor emotional fluctuations in, in people's like face and their behavior, and you become very good at reading it. In the maladaptive version, that's completely debilitating. But if you can treat it, it actually is an extremely adaptive trait because you start understanding and intuiting the emotions of other people. And so it was a maladaptive trait before. And I think later on, it became very adaptive. Um, and the other thing I think I was just very, so I was a loner and I loved solitude. I was very good at avoiding groupthink. And so I would say that maybe at the time, like people might've noticed that like, oh, I was, I was good at not needing to be, need, I didn't need to be in the group or get the group's acceptance in order to be happy. I think it's a really important trait when you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's interesting because in seventh and eighth grade, it's all about fitting in. Yeah. You know, I, am I in the nerds or the jocks or the theater club or the glee? You go, yeah. If you don't have a tribe, yeah, and you're alone, that's a that's not the currency that for seventh and eighth grade, that's for sure. And I did not have a tribe. <laughs> <laughs> you're a tribe of one. Yeah. Tribe okay. of one. Yeah. Well, at least you were the head of the tribe. So yeah. you had that going. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, thanks so much for uh, joining us today on Genius at Scale. I really appreciate your candor and wisdom and your sense of humor. It's uh, super helpful for our audience. We look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Genius at Scale. All the best. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, Invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.